microphone on. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. I pray, God, today that we would take seriously the reality of who you are, uh, that the reality of who you are would cut through the static of the day today, and that we would believe in the reality of who you are, what you've done, and what you will do, and that, Jesus, because of who you are, we would strive to enter your rest as your people, that we would allow ourselves to be exposed to the truth of your word, that it would shine like a light into our hearts and would show us the places where we're not believing the beauty and the glory and the reality and the love of who you are, Jesus. And that in that shining of that light, we would find great freedom. We would find great freedom in remembering who you are and who we are. We'd find great freedom in the grace and the mercy that you've extended to us through your gospel and through your cross and through the blood of that cross. That we would live in the power of your resurrection and that we would live And in all these things we understand we have a great and faithful high priest who was tempted in every way and knew no sin, Jesus Christ. And that because of you, Jesus, we would draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that you have done. That because of your cross, we would draw near to God the Father with such confidence as the children of God that we would live our life in your presence. Lord, I pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, we will be in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11, continuing to work our way through this guy, one verse at a time. Um, Before I met Jesus, before I was a Christian, um, when I looked into what Christians were doing and the reality of the church, I saw something flat. I, I thought that it was just their way up the mountain. Uh, they had their way to get to God. I had my way to get to God, and we're all good here. I didn't, I didn't see the dynamic reality of a spiritual life in Jesus. I didn't see all the intricacies and complicated things that were happening. I honestly just thought, this is their fire insurance. This is how they know they're going to get to heaven, and this is just about getting to heaven for them. I missed and could not see at the time that the core of what it is to be a Christian is to love Jesus to know the God of the universe because of Jesus, and that in that reality of knowing and loving Jesus, there are so many complicated, dynamic realities in there that are very, very beautiful. We're going to look at one of those beautiful, complicated, dynamic realities uh, today as we dig into Hebrews. Uh, On the top of the list, right? So we fight to have peace. We fight to... And to rest, we fight to remain in the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus has done it all, that Jesus has done everything for me to know love and know and love God, to serve God, to be present with God, to enjoy God, and yet I have to fight to stay in the reality of all the things that He has already done. That's attention, right? Is it just me that stays up at night? So I'm fighting to enter the rest because of the things that he's already done. But I think when we look into what God is doing that, we see that this beautiful dynamic is there and it's just covered in God's grace and in God's power. And I think as we look at this text here in Hebrews, we're going to see some some wonderful things about that dynamic because the author of Hebrews wants you to fight for your rest. Not for your rest, for his rest. He wants you to fight for God's rest. He wants you to strive to enter God's rest. So let's go ahead and dig into... Verse 14 of chapter 4. Nope. 11. Let's start there. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. 
Now, interestingly enough, we've spent most of Hebrews looking through this tension of not that our life in Christ not being about what we've done or what we do externally, but ultimately about what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done through his cross and through his power and by his spirit and what he's done through his word to tell us about who God is. That it's not primarily about you and me and what you and I do, but primarily about what Christ has done on our behalf, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has set us free for freedom. The gospel is that we couldn't get to God, so God had to come to get to us. This is the gospel, and this is, this is the chassis of all of our Christian life. This is the framework for our whole existence as Christians, that Jesus did it. And we get to do everything else from there. So he's just spent three, four chapters driving this point home, and then where does he, what does he say now? Strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience he's talking about is the disobedience of the Israelites as they were in the desert. They're there with God, with a pillar of smoke, with the presence of God, with the tabernacle, with the Ten Commandments, with Moses, with the mountain, with all these wonderful things, and yet they didn't believe God. These weren't atheists. They saw God with their own two eyes. They saw the presence of God in this pillar of smoke and fire with their own two eyes, but they didn't believe who he was. They didn't believe what he was doing And they didn't believe the life that he had given them. They put their faith and trust in something else, even though they could see it. He doesn't want us to do the same thing. But here's here's the thing. So I could take a verse like this, right? And we could just stop here. I could not get into the rest of the verse, and I could stop here. I could say, all right, anchor church, let us therefore strive to enter the rest. And then I begin to tell you all the things that you have to do. I begin to make a shopping list uh, for you of the things that you have to do this week to make sure that you know that you're a Christian. So that you know, well, are you walking old ladies across the street? Because that's what Christians do. Are, are you not telling lies? Because that's what Christians do. Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying about X amount of time? Are you doing these things? And I could make a list for you, and you could, at the end of the week, be like, I walked an old lady across the street, and I read my Bible X amount of time, and I prayed X amount of time. I must be a Christian. Is that what makes you a Christian? No. No. Now, may you do those things because you experience the wondrous grace and the beauty of Jesus Christ? Yes. If you see people who need help, do you help them? Yes, because God has helped you. But I think something we can do is is someone becomes a Christian or, or they get serious about church for the first time in their life. And so our first impulse, because we don't know what to do with them, is we begin to give them a list. And we say, well, here's these ten books you have to read and here's the three classes you have to go to. And then you also have to make sure that you're volunteering in this ministry and you have to start saying hi to people as they walk through the door, even though that's radically uncomfortable for you because you're a Seattleite. And saying hi to people is awkward. You do need to say hi to people. They're your church family. But that's not what makes you a Christian. So what we do oftentimes with the new Christian is we begin to pile on them weight of these are the things, oh, you got saved. Now here are the things that you need to do rather than stopping and saying, here's what's happened. Jesus has done it all. I love theology books. I, I meet God there. I, I, good, a good theology book that points you to Jesus, you see Jesus, and it's awesome. Uh, I think there's nothing better for a new Christian to get down with some other Christians and just be like, I have this question about, I don't know, I was reading Judges 5 and it said something weird. Can someone help me with Judges 5? Because I don't even know. Uh, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I don't know. I'm brand new. I don't know anything. Wait, you mean John the Baptist didn't write John's gospel? 
I didn't know that John the Baptist didn't write John's gospel. I mean, I thought it was weird that he got his head cut off in the middle. I didn't know how he finished the book, but it, I don't know. <laughs> and it's okay. The point of being a Christian is not that you get all your doctrine, uh, all the nuts and bolts on straight. The, the point is that you get saved by Jesus Christ. We're here to help you fill in all those other blanks. You're, like, I, real, you're, you're sitting there and you're like, I have to be cool because I, didn't, I thought John the Baptist did it. You don't have to be cool. We love you. You don't have something that anyone's going to like laugh at you uh, for not knowing. We're here to help you because guess what? I didn't know either. I didn't know that one. It was really embarrassing, actually. Really, really embarrassing because I was a know-it-all and I got knocked down a notch. Um, but it was okay that I didn't know that. I'd never read the Bible before. Who knew there were so many Johns in the Bible? I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but you can see the problem of stopping there and getting people right to work. Our life in Jesus isn't about getting to work, but responding to the reality of what Christ has already done. And this is a tension. Uh, There are two extremes, I think. Um, There's one extreme that's going to put so much responsibility in God's court for the tension uh, that it's almost like it's God's fault when we sin. I, I, I can't believe that God did that thing and then I sinned and we don't take personal responsibility for it. We don't say, I sinned against God there by doing the thing that I wanted to do. Instead, we say, I was letting go and letting God and then I sinned and I don't know what happened there. Okay, on that one side. And then on the other side of the tension, there's this other problem, right? And on the other side of the tension, uh, there's this thing where it's all my job. Okay, Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the price for all my sins up to the point in time in which I met him, and then everything else is on me. He got the tab that lunch, I get the tab this lunch, and everything else is on my shoulders. If I'm going to love God, uh, it's not really that he's loved me first, and I'm responding to his love, and I'm responding to the cross, and I'm responding to the reality that the cross has covered the price for all of my sins, but that I have a lot to do. I have a lot of work to do. And it's actually somewhere in between the two because everything we do, even if you say, I love Jesus, that is an act of grace. That's grace in your life. You can't say that you love Jesus unless the Holy Spirit's empowering you to do it. And yet you have to be the one to say it. I love Jesus. How did I say that? The Holy Spirit empowered me to do it. And you see there's this dynamic balance in between. And the balance might even be the wrong for it. There's this dynamic dance. And I think the dynamic dance here is best articulated by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. It'll be on the screen, so you don't have to go there if you don't want to. But Paul kind of freaks me out here. We'll be in Philippians 3, chapter 7. And Paul is talking here, this game that he's going to be speaking about is the fact that he was a Pharisee. He was a religious cat. He did right things all the time. And he thought that he deserved a parade for them. And he was awesome for all the good things that he did all the time. He was white-knuckling every day of his life. He did all the right stuff all the time. And this is what it says about what he says about that. Because he was doing it so that he could know that he was right with God. He was doing it to try and get up to God. He didn't realize that God and Jesus Christ had to come down and get to him. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All the stuff I did was nothing. The only thing matters is knowing Jesus. Me walking old ladies across the street does not matter. Jesus matters. Now, when Jesus matters, you will love the church. You will say hi to people. You will greet people. You will love the people of God. You will want to walk in community. You will want to walk old ladies across the street. You will want to read your Bible. But it's not because you're doing those things so that God will love you. You're doing those things in response to the reality that God has loved you first. First. 
I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Take it all. All I want is Jesus. Nothing is more valuable than Jesus. Take my good works. Take it all. Take my books. Take my Phariseeism. Take my, my, my acts of walking old ladies across the street and doing good and being kind and, and, and loving people. Take them all. Because all of those things, compared to Christ, those are good things to do, but compared to Christ are nothing. The thing I want in life more than anything is to know Jesus. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, because it's his righteousness, not mine. If I'm right with God, it's because of what Jesus did. I have nothing to offer God at the end of the day other than the name of Jesus Christ. Why should you be in the kingdom? Because Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived, died the death I deserve, rose from the dead, and invited me into the family, and I believe in him and his completed work. Sleep well tonight if you believe that. Sleep well. It's finished. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I have the word power of resurrection circled in my Bible because there's two things happening there. One, Jesus is putting the world back the way it's supposed to be. He's putting you and I back the way they're supposed to be if you're in the church, if you're in his family, and he's going to put the world and his people back the way they're supposed to be. But when you hear the word resurrection, think life. So we're not just sharing in the power of the resurrection sometime in the future, though we will. We're sharing in the resurrection and the power of the resurrection now. Because before I met Jesus, I was dead and now I'm alive. He rose from the dead to save me from myself, not just to save me from my sin, but to him and to life. That is the power of the resurrection because he didn't just die, he rose from the dead. That he didn't just die for my sins, but God accepted those, that, that payment for my sin and that sacrifice and accepts it by raising his son from the dead. So we now are alive. You were dead and you're alive. Do you forget that? I forgot that. I forget that all the time. You probably forgot that this week. You used to be dead and now you're alive. Why are you alive? Nothing you did. Everything he did. Because you didn't resurrect him from the dead. God the Father resurrected him from the dead. You're alive. Praise the Lord if you're in Christ. And if you don't know him, we're inviting you into life. That I may know him in the powers of resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, by any means possible, by anything that I do, anything, anything, I will do anything to get to Jesus. I will do anything to get to Jesus. Nothing is off limits. I will not stand like the rich young ruler and Jesus says, this one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. You can have it. I don't need it and I don't want it. I want you, Jesus. That's what he's saying. You want my stuff? Take my stuff. You want my comfort? Take my comfort. You want my health? Well, stay out of my health. Take my health. You want the opinion people have about me? Take it. You want people thinking I'm awesome or eloquent or special or great? Well, I was, comfort- I was okay with you taking my lazy boy, but I really like the way people think about me. Take it. Take it all. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now hear this. Hear this. This is the tension. Verse 12. Because most Bibles have a little, uh, a little thing in here in between. And you might stop there and be like, okay, I'm done for the day. But you've got to keep reading because verse 12 says this. 
Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How is it that we strive to enter the rest? I strive to make Christ Jesus my own because he already made me his own. There's a tension there. Putting one foot in front of the other. I have this job to put one foot in in front of the other, but how do I put one foot in front of the other? I do so because Christ Jesus has made me his. I love God. Why? Because he loved me first. It's a both and. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. You sinned yesterday, maybe. Maybe yesterday was the worst day of your life. Maybe it was the worst, darkest, deepest pit of your whole life. Here is the power of the cross. It's gone if you're in Christ. It's over if you're in Christ. It's in the past if you're in Christ. Forget what lies behind and strive on to what lies ahead, Jesus Christ. You don't make atonement, he makes atonement. You don't make penance, he paid the price. You can't pay him back, he already paid for it if he's yours. That's the power of the gospel. That is the power and the fuel to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's our tension. Back to Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Here's what I hope we get out of Hebrews here is not only is he calling us to press on, to strive to enter our rest, he's going to show us how we are to strive into our rest, and I think he even gives us a true picture of what that rest actually looks like if we keep reading. If we keep reading. Are you familiar with this verse? If you're a Christian, you're probably familiar with this verse that I just read, right? If you're getting and you have it tattooed somewhere on your body, right? Which is great, it's a great verse. But do you know what's before it or after it? We have to be careful not to just take these things out of the context in which they exist because this verse flows right out of the last one. Since then we have a great... Oh, pardon me. Oh, I keep skipping ahead to like my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Verse 11. Therefore, we strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And grammatically, it just rolls right in. For, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Wait, what? His? His? Yes. Uh, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, t- of him to whom we must give account. Um, now here's, here's a little issue. Uh, if you read this out of context, what people often will do is they'll look at this and say, oh, we're talking about the word of God, and then it starts talking about him and his. And you think, well, John chapter 1, verse 1 talks about how Jesus is the word of God. Maybe we're not talking about the Bible here. Maybe we're talking about Jesus here. Now, that's, that's one, a, a guy you may have never read, but a guy named Karl Barth, who is one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. You may not have read him, but you've read people who read him or you've heard people who've heard him, uh, and uh, one of the problems is that he took this interpretation. What's the big problem with that? What have we been looking at in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks? The voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit that is the Bible, 
right? He's talking about the Bible here. He's talking about the power of these 66 books put in this one beautiful library. And the reason why Karl Barth wants to do that, and others will do that, is because if you can get rid of this, then it kind of changes how we roll in Christianity. It changes what you do with Jesus. It changes what you do with the Old Testament. It changes what you do with the Psalms. It changes what you do with Genesis. You can kind of get rid of this and be like, well, that's a nice thing that sort of tells us some things about Jesus. Rather than saying, this is living and active. This is the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the reason why it starts saying him and his in the next verse is because this is the light by which God shines into the crevices of our lives to expose the places where we aren't believing Him, we aren't seeing Him, we aren't trusting Him, so that He can free us from those things and live the life that He's intended for us to live. That's why He switches to Him. But here we're talking about the Bible. And I hope if you have this one tattooed on you because you're a Gideon, you don't miss how powerful these verses are. I always get concerned when there are parts in the Bible Uh, that we become so accustomed to, that we miss their glory and their beauty. Hear what it says about God's word here. I'm going to read it again because it's good. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is where I get a short sword, because that's what it would have been, in Roman times, and I pull it out, and I begin to talk about wielding the sword. It makes a noise, and everyone goes, ooh, he's got a sword. And then when we're done here today, you're like, what happened at church? He said, I don't know, but he had a sword. And then I have this, in addition to that, I would have a mannequin dressed up in Roman armor, and I would begin to tell you about the armor of God from Ephesians 6. And you don't remember what the sword was about. You don't remember what the armor was about in the Bible. But you say, but he did have a sword. So I'm going to invite my friends back next week because he had this Roman armor. I've never seen Roman armor. That was except when I was in Vegas or whatever. Blah, 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 right? (coughs) Caesar's palace. The point of this is not a Roman short sword. The point is this. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Interestingly enough, these words are used uh, fairly interchangeably within the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, but soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, pierce through and cut through and get to the core of our being. They will cut through the static of the day-to-day. They will cut through the lies that we tell ourselves. They will cut through what other people say about you. It will cut through soul. It will cut through spirit. And it will cut to the very core of your being. God's word is scary and dangerous. And I don't know if you've ever had a day that you approach this thing with trepidation because it's so powerful, but you should from time to time. Because you never know what he's going to do when you open this book and you let it read you. You never know what he's going to say to you. You never know what he's going to reveal to you. You never know what he's going to show to you. Because this is living and active. God's amazing. So it's, it's word act. The Bible is a word act document. That sounds so sterile. Not only does it show us what God has done in history, it also shows us God's point of view on what he has done in history. And not only was there a capital A author, I will do no more giant hand signals, I promise. Not only was there a capital A author, God, 
who superintended, inspired, inerrant, without flaw, without mistake, perfectly the things that were written through, amazingly enough, human beings at different times and different places who write with their own grammatical and syntactical issues. They write it in Hebrew and in Aramaic and in Greek and in their own, their own slang, you know, their own stuff, Peter's stuff. Peter's stuff's a little more fisherman, a little more carpenter, right? And Paul's stuff's a little more fancy lad, right? And even Peter says, hey, I know you were reading what Paul had to say, like the other scriptures, calling Paul's writing scriptures, and he essentially says, I don't know what the heck that guy is talking about, but don't you mess around with it. Don't you monkey with it. Don't you change it. They're twisting it like they twist the other scriptures. Don't twist it. Try and understand it. Because Peter's like, I don't know. That guy's crazy. I'm going to keep writing. Keep going. So God uses human beings. It's amazing that he does. See another tension there? Just like God uses us in our sanctification process as we're striving after him. He's empowering, moving, superintending, and yet we do it. They're actually writing. There's this dynamic thing that God's doing by his grace as he's interacting with his creation, as he's interacting with his critters, critters, creatures, human beings, to create this thing that's living and active. So not only did Moses you know, preach for 40 days and write it all down because it was good stuff, but also, that wasn't just for them. That's for you today. That you can open Deuteronomy and it can cut through the static of the day-to-day. It can cut to your core. It can get to the center of your being. Remember what he keeps saying? Remember what we've been saying these last couple of weeks if you've been with us? Don't fall to unbelief. So it's not just a book you read. It's a book that reads you. And you've got to let it read you. It will cut through to the core And there are times, honestly, where it cuts through the core if you don't want it to because he loves you so much. Even when you're hard-hearted and stubborn, he still cuts through the core. and You're like, oh, I didn't think that was going to be the kind of morning we were dealing with today, God. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for freeing me and liberating me and loving me. But it calls us back to reality. How does it do that? Uh, You look at something like Judges, right? My kid's Bible show makes jokes about the, the times of the celebrity judges, right? Like they were Judge Judy or something, right? And there's some cool stuff in there. You know, guys with, not, left-handed guys with knives and kings and things that are happening and you're, you're reading and it's fun and it's adventure and there's war and there's this and there's that. But we're not just reading it for the historical account. And some of you are like, left-handed, what are you talking, left-handed is sad, what are you talking about? Yeah! <laughs> Read Judges. Someone else did. Read Judges. But there are a couple of refrains in Judges. One of them says, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then it tells you which pretend God they got after that week. It's always a di- and they got after Baal this week. Oh, good. And they did this, this, and this. And, or, or the other refrain, and there was no king in the land, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what it begins to show you is this pattern that when people follow God and listen to God and trust God and believe God, that things go well for them, even when there's hard times. It still goes well for them. But when they, when they, when they forget what God has done, it says, and they forgot what God did. They forgot who God was. They forgot what he's like. They forgot the things that he did. They do their own thing. They do what's right in their own eyes. They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. They don't listen to God. And sometimes when you're sitting there reading Judges, you realize, I'm doing what's right in my own eyes. Oh God, I'm, I'm not listening to you. I'm not seeking you. 
I'm not seeing you. I'm not trying to see things your way. I'm trying to see things my way. And then you have the moment of liberation where you get out of the weeds and you say, God, I want to go your way. I want to follow you. And that cuts right to the core. Sharp, active, living. God planned that for you that morning. He planned that. As the Holy Spirit wrote it through the author of Judges, he planned that for you that that morning when you opened your Bible, you would read it and it would cut right to the core. You know that? Because living and active. It's living and active. There's other times. Nathan, the prophet Nathan, King David, right? David has gotten into all kinds of shenanigans. All kinds of shenanigans. And Nathan begins to tell him a story. So there's a guy with a lamb. And that guy with the lamb, uh, that guy with the lamb, there's this one guy with a lamb, and it was like a family member. It was like a daughter to him, which is weird, but anyways. And there's this rich guy who had all these lambs. But then he took that lamb, and he made dinner for somebody else out of it. Even though he had all the other lambs, he took that guy's lamb that was like his daughter and made dinner out of it. And what does David do? Get him. Find that man, and let's get him. And then what does Nathan say to him? If you don't know the story. You're the man. You're the man. And what happens in that moment? Cuts right to his core. And the thing is, sometimes we look at it and we realize, oh man, the rich young ruler is such a jerk. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear, you're the man. That's you, chief. And you say, oh, let's not get him. (laughs) Let's find grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Right? And this is actually a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful way to walk with your kids in the gospel. Because it turns out when your kids do things to your other kids, if you've got several, if you lay out that same story for them and you say, so let's say someone did the thing that you just did, but you don't say you just did. You say, let's say someone did X, Y, and Z to your sibling. What would you do? And they'd say, get them. And you say, you're the man. Or girl. Boy. And you show them the gospel. You point them to the gospel. You point them to reality. You take them back to the word and let the word cut to their core. But it's not just there. If this is true, then also of these negative things as the light shines. Uh, it's also true of the converse, that this cuts through when you're believing lies. Right? You're believing what the world tells about you. You're believing the messages that the world is saying about how much money you have or your body image or, or, or sexual immorality or objectification or your status or how many people are reading you on Twitter or whatever that thing might be. And sometimes when you're there in the Word... And you're reading it. And maybe you're reading about Zacchaeus, who's a big nobody. And you read about how Jesus came and was at his house. And you realize this isn't just a kid's story. Jesus actually came to this guy's house. And when you realize in that moment, that woman who's weeping and washing his feet with her tears, and Jesus picks her up and says, Go! Your sins are forgiven. You believed. You realize, I believe. I'm his and he's mine. And it's not just a kid's story. It's the truth. The Bible cuts through to our core and you understand who he is and who you are and because of his cross, who you are. And it cuts because it's living and it's active and it changes everything. And all these things, it shows us our great need for Jesus. One thing the Bible will do again and again and again will show you your need for Jesus. 
And this is a means for that striving. This is a means for that fighting. Because when you understand your need for Jesus, you'll say with Paul, by any means, I will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Because I see how much I need him. Because I read about the judges, and it didn't go so well for them. And it's not going so well for me, and I need him. This happened to me as I read the Bible for the first time. I went, oh, I'm in a lot of trouble. I have sinned mightily against the God of the universe. I've thrown myself a lot of parades for doing good things, and I've done a lot of wiling out, and I've hurt a lot of people, and I've hurt God. And then there's the cross. I see my need for him. Let's keep going. 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Jesus knows everything you ever did. Jesus knows everything about you. And through his cross, looks at your life and calls you his. He loves you when you're unlovable. And loves you. Not only that, but again, conversely, do you want to be known? We live in a weird town. I love this town, by the way. I always want to speak positively of the place we live. I love Seattle. I am weird with Seattle, not weird against Seattle, right? Does that make sense? Okay, let's be clear. Don't get me going off on how rad Seattle is. Weird with Seattle. We can be unfriendly. We can be cold. We can be distant. We can be um, people who show what we want to show about ourselves on the internet. We, We... do all these different things to present a certain face, and then there's this exterior where it's hard to penetrate in and be known. And the reality is, is that Jesus knows you. I mean, you're known by Jesus in a way that you don't even understand. If you're feeling isolated and alone in your life, you need to understand there's somebody who knows you. His name is Jesus, and he knows everything about you. And not only does he know everything about you, he takes you as you are. He knows every, as he shines that light in your life, he knows every nook and cranny of everything and calls you his. He calls you a son or daughter of most, God most high because of his cross. That's being known. You're known. How known? We have a great high priest. It's awesome. Verse 14. Since then, this is how we're going to remember, connect this back up with what we're talking about. We're striving to enter rest. So we have the word. And then we have this. This is how we're going to enter. This is the means by which we're going to enter God's rest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Wait, I thought you said he was born as a baby. Born as a baby passing through the heavens? This is metaphorical language to make you clear about something about him. He had to come down for you because you can't go through the heavens to get to him. He came as a baby to get you even though you as a grown person can't go through the heavens to get to him. Okay? Then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, this truth about who he is. Whenever you see high priest, think, this is the symbol to me that Jesus Christ crushed the beef that I made between me and God so that I can know and love God. We will get way, way deep down into some high priest stuff. We'll get there. There's chapters and chapters on this book about it. But when you see high priest, remember, he's the one who did everything for me to know God. 
He is my high priest. The job of the high priest in the Old Testament is to once a year go into the Holy of Holies where the, the, uh, the pillar of smoke resided, where the Ten Commandments resided, to make a sacrifice for Israel and get out of there. It was so serious as he entered into that place that they would tie a rope to his foot with some bells on it just in case he'd forgotten to confess some secret sin and didn't realize that he was doing something in the back room nobody knew about and then he dropped down dead and they would have to pull him out because they weren't going in to get him. That's how serious it was. And he goes in on behalf of Israel. Now, the thing is, is that we have this different high priest now. Mark's gospel tells us as Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that was there was torn from heaven down. It was torn from heaven down. There's a reason God tore it from heaven down. It's not us tearing it to get between the beef that we've made between us and God. It's God crushing the beef that we made with him. It's Jesus Christ being our great high priest who brings us into the presence of God. It's Jesus Christ who does it all. It's Jesus Christ who makes the way for us to know, love, and serve God. So when you see high priest, think about how he crushed the beef between you and God. He dealt with all your running and all your rebellion and everything. And he crossed the gap and he came through the heavens and he came to get you. So how is it that we're going to enter our rest? Not from us tearing the curtain from the bottom up, but him tearing the curtain from bottom down. That's how we're going to enter into our rest because we have this great high priest. And hear what it says about our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect. How many respects? Every. The Greek word here is every. But one who in every respect has been tempted. What? Jesus? But not every respect. You don't, I mean, not the way I'm, I mean, not that way. Not this way. Not like me. You don't know what it is to be like me, Jesus. It's not what the Bible said. That cuts to the core. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You have nothing that Jesus, in a real and tangible, active way, you have no struggle, no sin, nothing that's keeping you from entering that rest that he cannot, in a tangible way, speak into. Only in the Bible, by the way. Only in Christianity. Only in the gospel will you find a God like that. So not only do I have this word that's going to shine the light into the crevices of my life and cut through the core to show me who God is and who I am and who I am because of Christ, but I have Christ himself, a faithful high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's entered into human history, who can relate to me, who, can know, who knows my weakness as I'm striving to enter that rest, as I'm fighting to love Jesus and not the world, as I'm fighting to believe Jesus and not Satan and the lies I tell myself, as I'm fighting for these things. I have Jesus who knows who I am. I have Jesus who knows me and who knows where I'm at personally because he was here himself. 
Oh, and by the way, who also dealt with it all. Every ounce and shred of sin that I've sinned against God, whether it's the good things or the bad things, my religion where I'm trying to claw my way up to God or my wiling out where I'm trying to be God, he's dealt with it all so that I am forgiven. So what? So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. It's where we get, we don't get what we do deserve and find grace. So mercy is where we don't get what we do deserve and grace is where we get what we don't deserve, if that makes sense. So mercy is where, uh, I always think that people have help, need help with mercy. You're driving down the highway, you see somebody speeding, you say, where's a cop? You want justice. Mercy is when you're driving down the highway, you're speeding, and the stater lets you go. You got mercy. You deserved a ticket. You didn't get a ticket. That's mercy. Grace, the stater pulls you over and gives you a Corvette. <laughs> if you'd call that grace. <laughs> Depends where you sit, right? Not, not here, but just in life. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It might be a time of need for you. Jesus might feel dim right now. He might feel far. Your struggle might feel tough. Your suffering may be immense. It may be a time of trouble for you. And what can you do because of Jesus, your high priest, in that time of trouble? You can draw near to the throne of grace. You might hear these things of the gospel, and you might not even be a Christian. You're like, I want to draw near to the throne of grace, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past. I'll need to work hard and clean my life up and wear nicer clothes and come and do this thing and do this other thing so that the Christians will think I'm cleaned up and good, and then Jesus will love me, but that's not the truth. In your time of need and suffering, you can draw near to the throne of grace. You can draw near exposed. This is where I'm at. This is my junk. This is my need. This is where I'm at, Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to save people who were cleaned up. Jesus came to save people in their need. He came for needy people. I'm needy. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. And in this reality, we can draw near to the throne of grace. I'm so sorry. We can draw near. And this is the picture of rest. Not only is this how we enter our rest, this is the rest. This is the presence of God. Life in the presence of the, the Lord. Life in the presence of Jesus who knows us and loves us. Loving Him, enjoying Him, and believing Him. So today is the day, friends. Not tomorrow that we draw near to the throne and we draw near to grace and we draw near to the Lord and we draw near to Him with everything we've got. <laughs> we don't leave the luggage outside. We bring the luggage on in. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We're desperate for you. You are good and you are gracious. I thank you for your word. I thank you that this isn't just a book this isn't just some pulp and some ink. This is living and active. That this is real. And that this isn't a book that, that we just read, but a book that reads us. A, a book that shines the light into the places where we're handing ourselves over to the slavery you've already freed us from.
May we live in your freedom and may we live in your rest. May we know that we enter your rest because of you, Jesus, our great high priest. And may we draw near to confidence, not because my life is cleaned up, but because Jesus Christ has paid the price for my sins. I can talk to God, know God, love God, and walk with God because of Jesus, not because of me. I praise you, Lord Jesus. I thank you. May we stand up and rejoice in this. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. Praise in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.